wrote an important article titled Seven False Teachers in the Church Today. The first false teacher that he describes is the heretic. What is the heretic? It's the one who teaches what contradicts an essential doctrine of the faith. Someone who perhaps denies the triunity of God or the gospel of grace, the two natures, the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a central doctrine of the faith. doesn't mean that if a person's wrong, he's necessarily a heretic. But if he denies or contradicts an essential doctrine of the faith, a, a, a doctrine that we have to believe in order to be saved, that person is a heretic. A second kind of false teacher in the church today is the charlatan. He uses the faith, he uses the ministry for personal gain. And so we know there are many in today's church that are charlatans. Third, the prophet. Um, the prophet uh, claims a new revelation. He always has a new, fresh word from God or from the Spirit. It may be a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Um, the fourth false teacher is the abuser. He, he uses his position to take advantage of others to satisfy his lust. So he's in a place of power, and he uses that to satisfy, gratify his, his sinful cravings, the abuser. Fifth, the divider. The fifth kind of false teacher is the divider. He divides, he's divisive, he divides brother versus brother, sister versus sister. Uh, he centers on things in his ministry and leadership that are not centered on the sufficiency of Scripture. And he is divisive. Sixth is the tickler, such as the ear tickler. He, this one uh, is about human approval. And so he gives messages that the masses want to hear. He tickles their ears. He, he's a people pleaser rather than a God pleaser. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 is case in point. 7 is the speculator. <laughs> the speculator is obsessed with novelty, obsessed with speculations, rather than the plain and the clear teaching of Scripture. And Challies concludes his article this way. He says, Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps, politicians, or power brokers, but pastors. Get that. Satan's greatest ambassadors are pastors. His priests do not peddle a different religion, but a deadly perversion of the true one. A deadly perversion of the true one. And hence the need for vigilance. And of course, Long before Chalice was Jude. Some point after the church here that he's addressing, after it was planted by someone within the circles of the apostles. We know that from verses 17 and 18 of the letter. 
Fierce wolves, to use the Apostle Paul's language in Acts 20, fierce wolves had come among them. And, and I want to I share this tonight. This is my last Sunday evening here at Fisherville. It's very emotional for me. And I want to share this because this is always a threat. And right now, it's not a problem at Fisherville. Praise God. We have so many Bereans here who examine everything by the word of God. But Jude is always going to be an important letter for Christ's church because it will either serve as a vaccination for false teaching or an antibiotic for false teaching. In other words, we know about vaccinations these days. Vaccinations are, are supposed to protect you from the infection. But if you have the infection, antibiotics take care of that infection. Jude can serve both purposes. In our case, by God's grace, it's a vaccination. And we begin this vaccination, this letter, with a very power-packed greeting. You could preach sermons on this inspired greeting. Look with me in Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, it's interesting how he describes himself. He is the brother of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. Jude is mentioned two times in the New Testament, and it is clear that the one writing this letter is or was the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, just to show you how humble he is, instead of reminding us that he's the brother of Jesus, I think I would have been, had the tendency to brag about that. He describes himself instead as the doulos, the servant of our Lord. And, and this servant writes to those, notice, I love this description in the second part of verse 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So, at the very beginning of this letter, he is reminding the church, he's reminding every believer in this church who are threatened by false teachers, who they are, that they will be kept by the triune God. He's, they're beloved in God, they're kept in Jesus Christ, and they're called. And we know theologically that the, uh, the effectual calling is the work of the Spirit, and so you see the triunity of God here keeping God's people. Now, what's interesting is called, it sounds like a verb in English, it's an adjective. So it describes the believer. Every believer is, is a called believer. So it's an adjective. But these verbs, beloved and kept, if I could be technical for a moment, are perfect tense verbs. And, and I say that because it brings home a very important theological point, and it's going to be important for us when we look at verse 21 in a few minutes. A perfect tense verb in Greek, we don't have it in English. It's, it's a verb that, that describes something that's happened in the past. 
but has ongoing permanent effects forever, will never be undone. So for instance, in John 19, when Jesus said, it is finished, that's a perfect tense verb, tetelestai, which means his all-sufficient atoning work for sin is complete and will remain complete forever. There will never be another need for a sacrifice for sin. In John 5, 24, Paul says, or John writes, whoever believes my word, this is Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will not be condemned. He has crossed over. That verb crossed over is perfect tense. He has crossed over from death to life. And so once you cross over, you can't go back over. That's our eternal security. And so here, at the very beginning of this letter, to a church that is struggling. Now, we're struggling for a different reason. There's a transition going on. And that's always a struggle. They were struggling for a different reason. But he reminds them, at the very beginning, you are beloved in God the Father. He loved you in the past and he will forever love you. And that's a game changer. And you are kept. You have been kept and will continue to be kept no matter what Satan sends your way for Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to begin this letter. And yet with that said, it does not undermine the need for prayer. And so he immediately moves into prayer in verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Again, this could be read in a Trinitarian way. It is God the Father who brings mercy it is, it is Christ who achieves peace. And love, we know from Romans 5, 4, is poured out on us by the Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian impulse uh, to Jude's letter here. And, and the fact that Jude desires and prays for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied, it reveals two things for every believer, every Christian here tonight, first of all, as believers, we already enjoy these things to some degree. Notice, he says, may it be multiplied, not may it be given. So we already have mercy, we already have peace, and we already have love by grace through faith in the triune God as he has revealed himself in the Son of God. But the second thing it reveals we should not be satisfied where we are. He is wanting to see this mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied in every believer and in his church. That's my prayer for Fisherville. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied over the next season. And what I think is remarkable about this as well is what kind of leader, what remarkable leader Jude is because he he knows how to encourage he knows how to pray but he also knows how to drop the hammer 
And that brings us to verse 3, where he begins to set his sights on the false teachers. Praise God, Fisherville is not in that place, but any church is always susceptible, and hence this need. Notice we in verse 3, as he begins to bring the judgment on the false teachers. Beloved, our beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he was planning to write, and his earlier plan was to write about their common salvation that they have in Jesus Christ. But he says, I found it necessary, though, to write appealing to you. So he had to change his plans given the, the, the dire circumstances, reminding us how important dealing with false teaching is. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This word contend, it's where we get the word agonize, all right? So he's saying agonize, literally agonize earnestly for the faith. Make it your full-blown purpose as the body of Christ. Contend for the faith. Doctrine, theology matters. Truth matters. Now, what is the faith? That's not the faith I exercise. It's the faith I hold. The faith here is the body of truth taught by Jesus and the apostles. You could even go before Jesus and the apostles, the law and the prophets, and Jesus and the apostles. In other words, by the time that Jude writes, and we don't know exactly uh, when Jude wrote this letter, the faith clearly had already been fixed in the church. Doesn't mean they had all 27 letters of the New Testament. The letters were still being written when this was. I know 2 Peter had already been written because Jude is largely dependent on 2 Peter 2 and 2 Peter 3. So he, he's certainly gleaning from Peter's writings, but it doesn't mean all the letters of the New Testament, nor had all the Gospels necessarily been written. But there was a fixed body of truth, of doctrine, that was already present and they were well aware of. But it was under attack and in need of defending. And so though the New Testament books had not been completed into a, uh, a full canon that we know is the 27 books of the New Testament, by now, as he writes, the foundational New Testament teachings were circulating in oral form, all right? And, and another important point, I think, from this verse is after the writings, the 27 books of the New Testament were authorized by the apostles and included and recognized as canonical, nothing more was to be added. Contend for the faith, notice, that was once for all delivered to the saints. So every cult that has added to these writings is in abject violation of this, this one command. 
that was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't need book 67. We don't need book 28 of our New Testament. It's been once for all delivered. And we are to contend, and, and Jude tells us in verse 4 why. He says, for certain people. Now, he's dealing with a particular situation at a particular church. We recognize that. But again, this isn't telling us what happened as much as it's telling us what happens. It is one of the devil's favorite methods. And again, I don't, I don't preach this to Fisherville out of any concern here. But I recognize that savage wolves in time will come. They, they come to every church. So this is a vaccination to, to Fisherville. In verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They come staff unnoticed. Uh, they may appear to be very orthodox and very evangelical and very theologically conservative. They come unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, this language of creeping in unnoticed is horrifying. He is describing one of the methods, one of the schemes of the devil. And Jude describes the false teachers. He is so colorful. I was telling the kids last or Friday night when we read this together that, you know, the Lord, this man was a wordsmith. And if I had been the Lord, I would have, I would have said, Jude, I'm going to have you write several letters of the, of the New Testament. You're, you're such a wordsmith. Um, but, but the Lord uses our gifts and talents the way he wills. And he willed for Jude only to write one letter. But that one letter is power punched. And, and he describes these false teachers in four ways right here. Now, he's going to describe it in more ways than that. But I'm just talking about in verse 4 alone. Notice he says, they were designated long ago for this condemnation. Now, what does he mean there? Well, I think he's going to go back to the Old Testament and show us God has always proven that false teachers do not get away with their sins and their crimes. And so the judgments that God brought long ago were just shadows and types of the kind of judgments he's going to bring under the New Covenant church. Notice as well, they are ungodly. They are ungodly. Again, these churches that don't take doctrine and theology seriously, I want to say, have you read Jude? It is ungodly not to contend for the faith. That's once for all delivered. They are ungodly, which means they're irreverent, they have a life that is not oriented towards the triune God. Third, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And fourth, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. I think those would be taken together. So what is he saying there? They want the grace of Christ without the lordship of Christ. That's essentially what they're desiring. They want to claim grace 
but they don't want any part of his lordship. It's, it's what I call greasy grace. It's what John MacArthur took on for so long uh, with the free grace movement that taught that you could have Jesus as Savior, but not Jesus as Lord. Well, if you have Jesus as Savior and not Jesus as Lord, you have an idol that you have named Jesus. He is Lord. And he is condemning that kind of mentality right here. They want the grace of Christ. They don't want any part of his lordship. They just want his benefits. They don't want his person. Essentially now, he's going to come to verses 5 to 19, and we're going to move pretty quickly through that. Because verses 5 to 19 is a commentary on Old Testament passages that Jude is going to use to show that these teachers that are doing this wickedness and teaching this heresy, there's nothing new under the sun. And the same thing that happened to the idolaters and the, and the false teachers and the wicked in the Old Testament, judgment, is going to fall on them as well. And, and I think one of the reasons he's doing this as well He's reminding these Christians. He's warning them, but he's also encouraging them. There's nothing new under the sun. This has always been a problem. But God takes care of the problem. You just contend for the faith and let God take care of the problem. So it's a forewarning, it's a for, but it's also forearming them. And the first example he gives is Egypt, and in particular the Exodus. Notice in verse 5, now I want to remind you Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but notice he says Jesus is the one who saved them out of Egypt. We'll come back to that in just a moment. He's very intentional, and I think it's remarkable. This is his brother. I, I don't know about you, but my children, they have a hard time complimenting each other. All right? And so for Jesus' half-brother to say, hey, my brother, Jesus, he's the one that brought about that exodus. I mean, that, that's, that's a remarkable statement there, knowing how, how rare compliments are from siblings. We'll come back to that. But he says, Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so after the exodus, an entire generation, as we know, was judged in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief, because of idolatry and note by Jesus. Now, admittedly, the Old Testament does not use the name Jesus in referring to the Exodus or the judgment. So what gives? Well, this is a clear example of a New Testament understanding, an apostolic understanding of the Old Testament. This is how they interpreted their Old Testament, according to which the, the eternal Son of God, in His eternal divine nature was active in the world long before the incarnation. 
So the Son of God was at work at creation and in redemption, even in the Old Testament. And he just uses his human name there. He uses the name that he knew him by, Jesus. And so Jesus judged, he said, the Israelites who escaped from Egypt or was redeemed out of Egypt because they apostatized. And he's warning, this is what's going to happen to false teachers and those who follow that false teaching. Second example is found in verse 6 from the angels. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so the heart of the comparison here is that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but evidently rebelled against God's authority and sought to equal themselves with him received judgment. Now, what source is Jude using? Could it be Genesis 6? Maybe. If we interpret Genesis 6 to be the sons of God being the angels, cohabiting with the sons of man. It's hard to say. Jude does not give us the source. There's a lot of ink spilled here, but I would just submit we're not given the source, and so it's not important. But what is important is... Just as these angels were not submissive to the authorities over them, these false teachers and those who are following them are in the same kind of rebellion and judgment fell. Third example we see stems from Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I tell my kids all the time, when someone does something for us that is a, a real example of godliness, I tell them, when God gives you a positive example, that's a grace. You need to steward that example. And we have seen that time and time again here at Fisherville. People loving us, serving us. And I try to point that out to the kids. That example is a gift for you. Positive examples are a gift. Jude would say so are negative examples. We need to learn from the negative examples aware. Those are also gifts to Christ's body. Because the same thing that happened at Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen to the unrepentant in the day. And so this serves as an example of what happens to those who turn from apostolic authority and God to follow their desires. Now in verse 8, Jude is going to connect the, the, the false teachers uh, to the examples he just gave. It almost feels like a sermon that he's given here. Notice in verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner. So he's given you those examples. Uh, the, the people out of Egypt, 
the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And now, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams. We don't need revelation from dreams. <laughs> How do you discern if it's from God or not? I mean, it may be based on what you were worried about or thinking about or the pizza you ate. He's condemning that here, relying on their dreams. You don't need dreams. You have the canon. You have the word of God. Relying on their dreams defile the flesh, probably likely saying, well, I had this new revelation from my dreams, and this is why I can do what I do. Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. And so these false teachers do three things here. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. Now, how do you reject authority? You reject the word of God and you reject the, the pastors and leaders God's appoints in his church. Third, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones? These are the angels. That's all we know. Um, this is a specific sin. We, don't, we can't go beyond that. What does it mean when they're blaspheming the, the angels? We just don't know. A lot of speculation there, but we're getting the point. And now he's going to illustrate the, their sin by drawing on Jewish tradition. Notice in verse 9, he says, But when the archangel, the archangel Michael... So there were two superior angels, Michael, Gabriel, right? Of course, you had uh, Lucifer who rebelled, who was the mightiest of them all. But here, he, he's, he's speaking about Michael. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. Y'all remember that text from the Old Testament, don't you? Well, it's not there. We'll talk about that in just a second. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke him. And so the archangel Moses was sent to Moses' body, but according to Jewish tradition, which Jude appears to agree with, the devil argued with Michael about this, but Michael did not dispute Satan, though he had the authority to do so as the archangel. Jude reminds us he's the archangel, but he said instead, the Lord rebuke you. Again, he's speaking about these false teachers who have no respect for any authority. And now in verse 10, we're going to come back to that when I speak to, when he's speaking about this tradition. Don't think I'm ignoring that. I'm going to speak to it. In verse 10, Jude contrasts Michael with these false teachers. He said, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. The all there has to be 
the faith for all, for all, once for all, delivered to the saints. They don't understand it, so they blaspheme it. And the reason they don't understand it is because they don't have the Spirit. We're going to see that in just a moment. Biblical doctrine is what they blaspheme. And second, they are all, they are destroyed, it says, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What did I say this morning? It's amazing how these, these uh, sermons line up and you don't intend it that way. Our reason is fallen. Our reason is fallen. Our reason says, if I am going to get to heaven, I've got to earn God's favor. Right? And, and that's why it's so hard for an unbeliever to understand the gospel. In fact, it's impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. Because we are hardwired for works. And so these false teachers, they blaspheme what they don't understand, the gospel of grace, and that grace is a double cure. It saves us from wrath and makes us pure. But they also are condemned because they reason like fallen an like animals. They, their fallen reason is like an animal. They, they operate by instinct like animals. And notice in verse 11, Woe to them! Woe! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He bleeds Old Testament. He assumes the church bleeds Old Testament. It's hard to understand him unless you know your Bible. And so, this is one of those triads that, that, that Jude is famous for. They walked in the way of Cain. What does that mean? You remember when Cain offered a, an offering of sacrifice to God on his terms? He offered the fruit of the land. What did Abel offer? Sacrificed animal. And Cain was the one judged. He thought he could come to God on his terms. Abel came on the terms set for him. When God covered his parents in the animal skins, it was established. You're a sinner, God is holy. If you're going to come to him, you come through a substitute that has been sacrificed for you. Cain rebelled against that. He blasphemed what he did not understand. So he's using Cain here as an example. Secondly, it says they abandoned themselves for profit for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Do you remember Balaam? Balaam was the false prophet that Balak hired to curse Israel. And he took Balak's money and instead of Cursing Israel, God intervened and he blessed Israel. In one of those great messianic passages in Numbers 24, I see him but not near, but not near. A scepter will arise who will crush the head of Moab. He, he prophesied this glorious prophecy about the coming Messiah. But he was a prophet for hire. He says these people are prophets for hire. And then third... They have perished in Korah's rebellion. You remember Korah? I had an Aunt Korah. Who would name 
their child Korah. In line, <laughs> that's like uh, these churches. You'll see Corinth Baptist Church. Are you kidding me? Why would you, why would you name your church Corinth or, or Laodicea Baptist Church? Um, Korah rebelled against Moses and against his brother Aaron. And what, they could, what, what he could not see, what Korah could not see, rather, was that um, God had delegated his authority to them. And so to rebel against them was to rebel against Yahweh. And these false teachers are rebelling against God's pastors, God's preachers. So they have rebelled against God's authority and as a result would be destroyed just like Korah. In fact, their destruction was so certain. Notice the past tense, verse 11. It says, they have been destroyed. Where, where did I see that? They are destroyed by all. Verse 10. It's past tense. It's as good as done. Now notice in verse 12, these are... Now, again, he's going to get into six images describing the guys, and I'm going to go through this fast. We're getting close to the end. Be patient with me. These are hidden reefs. So he continues to describe the false teachers. These are hidden reefs at your love feast. The love feast would have included the Lord's Supper. These were special uh, worship services that would have included feast and also the Lord's Supper. And so these people were coming in and they were partaking in the Lord's Supper even though they did not believe what the Lord's Supper symbolized. These are hidden feasts at your love feast. Um, what is a hidden reef? Um, well, it, it's those reefs below the surface, right, of the ocean that can cause havoc on, on ships. So their deceit lies below the surface. That's why they, kept, they came in kept unnoticed. Notice they are shepherds. This is the second image. They are shepherds feeding themselves. That's like the charlatan uh, who uses ministry for personal gain. Shepherds feeding themselves. Imagine a shepherd who doesn't feed the sheep. Shepherd feeds, feeds themselves. That's a, that's a, a bad shepherd. It's what Jesus would call a hireling. They are waterless clouds. Doesn't he have a way with words? A waterless cloud. They're um, swept along by the winds. They are like clouds that have an appearance of rain that nourishes, but they have no water. They actually don't hold rain. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They bear no fruit in their lives. They bear no fruit in their ministries. They are uprooted. They are good as dead. And then in verse 13, the fifth image, they are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. This speaks to their volatility and their uncontrolled wicked behavior. These metaphors speak for themselves. The sixth image he uses 
is in verse, the second part of verse 13. Wandering stars. Um, planos, where we get the word for planets. These are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Literally shooting stars. What do they move? They move across the sky. They shine briefly, right? And then vanish without producing any light. Uh, fixed stars help guide navigators, don't they? That's what fixed stars do. But wandering stars are useless. He's describing they have light. It appears they have light, but then they vanish. It vanishes. It was no benefit. Therefore, they will be swallowed up, he says, into the eternal black darkness. Again, he's, he's driving home to every church how dangerous false teaching is. Now, in verses 14 to 15, Jude is going to link the false teachers to another Old Testament person. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of the holy ones, the holy ones being the angels, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. In short, Enoch prophesied about the final judgment awaiting false teachers and those who embrace false teaching. Now, admittedly, and this I'm going to come back to what I mentioned earlier, where he was appealing to tradition. Here it is, apparent, it is very apparent that Jude is appealing to the apocryphal book of Enoch. So what do you do with that? Well, I think it's straightforward. This does not compromise the doctrine of inspiration. If Jude quotes from an extra-biblical source, in this case Enoch, all he's doing is affirming the truths of that particular prophecy. He's not endorsing the book in its entirety. Let me give you an example from Paul. In Titus 1, Paul writes in verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, so he's a false prophet, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and he says, this testimony is true. He's not in any way um, affirming that this man is a true prophet. But he says that particular testimony is true. And so here, Jude appears to be appealing to something they were very aware of. And he says, in this particular case, they were right. Enoch's prophecy points uh, to the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ with 10,000 of his angels, his holy ones, when his purpose will be to judge the world, to judge the earth, and to convict all the ungodly. Now, that sounds harsh to people, but think about even what's happened in our city where we have 
I think, marginalized, in many cases, are police. And, and in all the places in the country where that's happening, crime has gone through the roof. That's not a good thing. What would be a good thing is to have, to fully support our police, fully support our National Guard, and have them go in and take care of the problem. That's a good thing. That's not harsh. And in the same way, when God takes care of the ungodly, that's a good thing. If you allow the ungodly to, to, to go unpunished, chaos. And that's what he's referring to here. In verse 16, he's going, now going to describe these false teachers in another way. Again, it's, it's remarkable um, how he describes them. These are grumblers, <laughs> malcontents. So the grumblers there, that's like those in the wilderness. It's the same word group. Uh, they are malcontents. Uh, what is a malcontent? It's someone who's always dissatisfied, always complaining, never happy. Never happy with anything. That's a malcontent. Uh, they are following their own sinful desires. This speaks of their carnality. They're loud-mouthed boasters. Literally, their mouths speak pompously. And they, he says in verse 16, show favoritism to gain advantage. Those who show favoritism for self-profit, self-benefit. It's a horrifying description. But now he's about done with his description of the false teachers. He's going to return back to the theme that we saw back in verse 13, giving us as a church ideas on how to contend for the faith. I want you to notice in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, all the apostles said that, but here he's thinking of 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Because here's what 2 Peter 3.3 3 says. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so G, Jude here is, is basically doing a Bible study in 2 Peter 2 and, and, and chapter 3. He's exegeting 2 Peter 2 and, and 2 Peter 3. And the mention of the scoffers here in verse 18 prompts Jude to give another list describing these false teachers. He just, why is he doing this? To wake us up to how horrific and dangerous false teaching is. Verse 19, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. That is a horrifying Description, devoid of the Spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit. And, and while Jude wants them to be warned of these false teachers, he also wants them to give attention to themselves. And so he closes out the letter in a remarkable fashion. You could preach an entire series on this last part. 
will be done in six minutes. That's my promise. Verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves. Here's what you do in this context. If or when this happens, here's what you do. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is the heart of the letter. He says, build yourself up. This comes from growing. We have responsibility in our growth. You can say, well, God is sovereign. Yes, he is. But you ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner today, right? Because you know you have to eat to grow. You have to eat. And, and he says you have responsibility here to build yourself up. Secondly, praying in the Holy Spirit. This, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Is this talking about tongues? No. It's not talking about tongues. He's writing to the entire church here. And he says, pray in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to pray out of hearts that have been indwelt by the Spirit and illuminated and filled with the Word of God. Letting the Word of Christ richly indwell you, being filled with the Spirit, and then keeping yourself, keep yourself, verse 21, in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now, what does he mean here? To keep yourself in the love of God. It appears he means God's love is conditional. That it's based on works. But you have to interpret Scripture with clearer Scripture. When Scripture is not as clear, you, you interpret it with Scripture that is clear. How did he begin the letter? Beloved in God the Father. Perfect tense. The Father has loved you. And will continue to love you. In verse 24, we're going to see in just a moment, he's able to keep you. So if he's able to keep you and he is going to love you, no matter, what does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? It's the same idea that Jesus meant when he said in John 15, verse 9, remain in my love. Remain in my love. What, what does it mean to remain in God's love? Well, in light of verse 1, where we're beloved in God the Father, and in light of verse 24, where we're kept, well, verse 1 tells us that as well, this clearly does not mean God's love is conditional. But it does speak to our responsibility to persevere in truth and in the true gospel of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by which God's love comes to us. In other words, however much, and I think this is the point, however much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, and it is continued enjoyment of his love, continued enjoyment of his love turns at least in part on our response to it. So God loves us, but for us to enjoy that love, to experience that love, 
requires a proper response to his love. If you spurn his love, I tell my children, when I'm spanking you, I'm loving you as much as when I'm hugging you. It's just that the love is expressed differently based on their response to my authority, right? I think that's what he's saying here. Keep yourself in the love of God. He, has, he loves you, and he will keep you, but you have responsibility in this process if you're going to experience this love that you have in Jesus Christ. And he says, waiting for the mercy, that is for the return of Christ, He's going to set everything right when he comes. And again, woven into this are two triads, the triunity of God and faith, hope, and mercy. And he says this will bring about eternal life. This will be the evidence that you truly are a believer. But he's not done. We're coming to the end. And have mercy. Here's how you deal with those who are being troubled, who are gravitating to this nonsense. And this is such a word in our cancel culture. What we tend to do is cancel people. That's not what he says to do. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Those who are struggling. Have mercy on them. Have you seen that on Twitter? Not much. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others. Of course, we know that Jesus is the Savior, but he uses human agency. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. How do you snatch them out of the fire? You get into their lives. You call them to repentance. You love them. You preach the gospel to them. You persevere with them. Snatching them out of the fire to others, show mercy with fear. Hating even the garment... Stained by the flesh. You can show mercy and still hate the garment stained by the flesh. You can hate the consequences and, and the sin itself. And then he closes with the doxology. Ah, we could preach a sermon on this, but we won't. Now to him. Now to him. Now this is the hope. We have read some really dark language. And it almost looks like the church is without hope. When you consider this is a common theme. To see false teachers infiltrate Christ's church. But verses 24 and 25 are some of those hopeful words. And these are, on my last Sunday night here, uh, these are the words I want to close our Sunday evening services. I want to close out with you. Not a hymn who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority that is a Fisherville church before all time and now and forever. Amen. So here at the very end Jude exalts with one of the most glorious doxologies in all the scriptures as he answers the implied question. If you are an attentive reader, who will deliver us from the false teachers and the false doctrine? In other words, Jude says, in spite of the assault on Christ's church, the triune God is going to maintain his people and maintain his cause. 
Now, we all understand and recognize there are churches that are given in to false teaching. But not churches that have been built on the Word of God. This church has been built on the Word of God. Even before I came, Jeff McCarty faithfully manned the pulpit and led God's people here at Fisherville. And here for the last 11 years, we have tried to build everything on the Word of God. And because it has been built on the Word of God, we have this hope. The light of the gospel, Jude says, will not be put out at Fisherville. It's not going to happen. And the salt is not going to lose its savor at Fisherville. Because this God, the God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, is keeping Fisherville Baptist Church. And that's the prayer that I will continue to pray for my family here in Fisherville. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace to us. We thank you for this difficult letter, but a glorious letter. I thank you for leading me to expound briefly on this letter on this particular evening. We have spent 11 years together on Sunday nights, a very sweet service that we all enjoy and are edified by. I thank you, Lord, that we can conclude on that beautiful doxology there in the book of Jude, in, in this letter to the church that he's addressing. I thank you for these people. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for my church family here at Fisherville. I thank you for their investment in me and in my family. And now I, I pray these words of benediction over them to you who is able to keep Fisherville from stumbling and to present Fisherville blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, to you be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority at Fisherville. Before all time, and now, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.